Amen. That is our gospel today. Good morning, everybody. So glad you're here. Our scripture focus this morning is John chapter 4, verses 45 to 54. I actually saw a few people carrying Bibles in today. I'm so excited for that. There really is a great opportunity when we hold God's word in our hands. And I know Bible apps are good. I use them too. But there's something about the book. I just love holding on to the book. So there are Bibles in the seats in front of you if you'd like to use one of those. Otherwise, it'll be on the screen. Um, John chapter 4 verses 45 to 54, the healing of a royal official's son. Please stand for this reading from God's word. When Jesus came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Since they had all seen that he had done Jerusalem at the festival, for they too had gone to the festival. Then he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he changed the water into wine. Now there was a royal official whose son lay ill in Capernaum. And when he heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went and begged him to come down and heal his son, for his son was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down. Before my little boy dies, Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started on his way. As he was going down, his slaves met him and told him that his child was alive. So he asked them the hour when he began to recover. And they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. The father realized this was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he himself believed, along with his whole household. Now this was the second sign that Jesus did after coming from Judea to Galilee. This is the gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you for being again this morning. Let me pray before we encounter God's word deeper today. Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to gather together, brothers and sisters alike, friends and neighbors, new friends, Father. And we just pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would amplify for us that word that has been spoken to us and that's been preserved by your Holy Spirit over these many, many centuries with such integrity that the words we read today are the words that were recorded back then. God, help it to speak fresh to our hearts this morning as it may have to the first readers and as it has done through the centuries. We join their company as one church together in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Our series is called Signs and Wonders, and it's our Lenten series. We're exploring the Gospel of John, which is framed in part by these signs and wonders that the author points out in the scripture. There are seven of them, and we're going to be exploring them one at a time as we head towards Lent. Uh, These signs and wonders, of course, point us to the reality of Jesus. Um, And uh, I was thinking about, because we're doing signs and and wonders, that I've been more attuned lately to how many signs there are in in our lives. I mean, it really is a lot of signs that we have. Even just on my short drive here this morning, I was like, all right, how many signs? I lost count. Even just pulling out of my street, people have house signs and street signs. And then there's signs on the, uh, at the end of the block. And then there's, you know, stop signs. And 
railroad crossing signs. There's tons of signs everywhere. People have them in their yard. They have them all over the house. They have them on the streets. There's, you know, again, directionals. And I just realized, even walking in here, there's signs. There's a bathroom sign. There's an exit sign. We have signs everywhere. I actually imagined we are probably the most signed culture ever to live. And, and we like them because they obviously give order and structure, you know, one way and stop and yield and, you know, they help for that or, you know, helps you know what street you're on, that kind of stuff. Um, but we can't get enough of signs because we love to hang them in our house too. We go to horrible places like Michael's and Hobby Lobby. No, I just don't like them. And we buy more signs and we hang them in our house and they point out the obvious things like welcome. Can't you just say welcome when the person comes in the door? But then we have to change the signs because change of the season. So we have Christmas signs to remind us it's a joyful season. I know that, but we got to put a sign up. Once Christmas ends, take that sign down, put more signs up. How many of you do this in your house, the signs and the seasonal signs? Yeah, lots of seasonal signs. They, they make a killing on these things, right? Seasonal signs, they got tons of signs at Michael's and Hobby Lobby. So, uh, they got a whole... Uh, aisle of signs just for your laundry room because you can't just be in your laundry room and not know that you're in the laundry and this is the house where the clean clothes go here. We got signs everywhere and we put inspirational signs up to encourage us. This is not the worst ones. You know, we put encouraging signs up all over our house, maybe to speak to us, to speak to our family, to remind us of our shared values. By the way, uh, they're 50% off. <laughs> God, ladies, guys too. They're always 50% off. <laughs> they're never not 50% off. That means they're not really 50% off. We love signs. We're talking about different kinds of signs here. Now again, we're the most signed culture that's probably ever existed in the world. We love signs. Back then in Jesus' time, they didn't have a lot of signs. But they had Jesus and he was there and he was doing things that they recognized were signs. And again, we said signs give us a sense of comfort and direction and order, but signs also can be used to encourage us. And I think that's applicable to what Jesus is doing with these signs and these wonders. The, his signs, these, these miracles and these moments were pointing us to know who he is as Savior and to trust his voice, that he was truly the voice of God, the word of God come flesh, that he was a true prophet of God, the only son of God, and he was there on a mission to bring kingdom here to earth, redemption possible by faith. Our signature verse for this series is John 20, 30-31, that says this. Now Jesus, he did many signs, many other signs, than the ones that are recorded in the book. He did them in the presence of the disciples, and which are not always all written in this book. But these signs are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. In other words, Jesus did these signs in the moment to point towards the reality of who he was and that his message was true and his ministry was true. But he also gave us these signs. You notice it's still relevant today. These signs are here. They're written down so that you may come to believe that Jesus is Messiah and that believing you may have life in his name. So that gets us back to our story, which is going to be the second sign, um, and it's in John chapter 4. We heard uh, teaching last week from the very first sign, but now uh, Jesus is back. The setting is Galilee, his home region. 
uh, where Jesus said himself, a hometown prophet can have no honor. He's a hometown kid. You would think they'd be excited. Hey, he's doing good things, but actually, well, not really. He's a hometown kid. They, they can judge his words a little more, um, a little more judiciously, a little more critically. Because So the Galileans are there because, you know, they're Galileans, it's Galilee. But they've gathered together around Jesus because they've seen and they've heard what he has done in Jerusalem. He just went on this trip to Jerusalem, and rumor has that what he has done, but also people were there. So it's like they all went to, let's say they would go to the, to the Jerusalem, the city, and there was a festival there for Passover. Jesus said and did amazing things, and now he's come back, and the, and the people who were there came back, and they're like, ooh, Jesus did amazing things. We need to go check him out. So the Galileans are there because they heard what he had done. And they're also wondering, hey, what else has he done? Okay, what else is he going to do now that he's back home? Um, by the way, the text also reminds us that Jesus is now uh, back in the town of Cana where he had done the first miracle, which we talked about last week. Pastor Joy masterfully led us to that story of Jesus turning the water into wine. Very first sign, they said. And now he's back in that region. So the text here very quickly is giving us this setting, and I think it's trying to tell us a message, that people had seen Jesus do amazing things in Jerusalem, and now he's back in Canaan, where, by the way, he had made that water into wine. And do you remember what they said about the wine? That it wasn't just regular old wine. It was the best wine they ever had. So it's giving us the sense that people are probably gathering around him because they're wondering, what is he going to do next? You know, you kind of imagine yourself like if you were at that wedding and you had the wine and you were like, that wine was amazing. I've never had wine so good. Hey, he's back now. He is? I wonder if he's going to make some more of that wine. <laughs> That's what the text is implying to us, that maybe he's back and people are gathering around him because they want to see what he's going to do next. Now, crashing into this moment of sort of anticipation of, of what Jesus might do. There's a royal official is what he's called in the scriptures. Uh, like literally a king, but kind of a minor king or mini king. Still a king, just not the, you know, one number one king, like secondary king, but still a king, a man of influence and means and people and respect. He crashes into the scene, but he has traveled all the way from Capernaum, which if you look on the map from the two kind of basic places they assume Cana is, it's roughly about 20 miles which in that day and time and terrain was over a day's journey, even in probably the super fastest, um, you know, travel that he had, his, his entourage, or however he got there on horse or whatever. Uh, he got, it would still take over a day to travel the 20 miles, at least a day's drive, a ride. Why is the royal official there? Because his son. And you can tell by the passion that this royal official has, it's a beloved son, may have been his firstborn, it doesn't say that, but his, his beloved son is, is very ill, and we learn quickly through the story, is, is near death, is near death. So this royal official traveled overnight to get to Jesus because he heard he was in the area, and he, this was his last hope. Let's assume he, he has all the resources that contemporary or contemporary to his age medicine could have provided. It wasn't working. His son was dying. And he heard Jesus, who had done amazing things, was in Cana, and he rode all night to get there because this was his last hope. Now, I'm amazed at this moment because as a parent, as a dad myself, like he left 
his sick child's bedside at the point where I don't think he's going to make it. And he got in his chariot and he rode to see Jesus. He left his child's side because there was a chance. And this might have been his last chance. Now, I've had the unfortunate privilege of, of sitting with people who have been in this situation, whether it was a premature child born 21 weeks or a very, very sick child on the brink. And you've sat with families, and it, it's, it's exhausting because, I mean, they will sit and stay at the bedside with endurance. So I'm fascinated by this idea that he left his son's bedside because there was one chance, one chance that maybe Jesus could do something. Now, if you've ever been in that situation, it's tender. I mean, it's probably the most uh, uh, anxious time in your life. And I don't mean just even as a parent, but to be sitting at the bedside with your sick child and you're not sure if they're going to go, you know, a few more hours or next day. Um, the, the closest I had to that was our, our dear daughter, Sabrina. Uh, she was about eight weeks old and we were moving. We moved across country. We, we took a plane trip and uh, she caught pneumonia. She must have caught pneumonia on the plane. And so the couple of days after we got there, she had a hot fever and the fever kept evolving and evolving. Finally, it was like, she is really not doing well. Um, it got to the point where, okay, we have two little ones at home also. The boys were very young. We've got to take her to the hospital. So my wife got in our car, drove her to the, to the nearest hospital and, and checking her. They were like, we got to take her to the children's hospital downtown. She's, she's in trouble. And I just remember feeling so helpless. Because it's your child, right? There's just never a moment of anguish that you'll ever experience than when your child's life is in the balance. And I'm, I'm fascinated that this royal official left to go find Jesus because Jesus he knew was his last and only hope. So what happens next, though, is, is kind of shocking. So this, this mini king, this, this royal official, a, a man of means and respect, he goes and the word says he begged Jesus to come back home with him and save his son. I'm going to assume that a, a, a royal official a guy with that kind of authority doesn't beg for anything. And he came to Jesus, his only hope, and he begged him, please come back to my house with me, traveling the overnight, because I want you to, to help my son to raise him because he's at the point where he's going to die. Literally, the word tells us that. He says, you know, my, my son is at the point of death. Please come with me back the 20 miles down to my house by the sea so you can lay hands on him and heal him. And you can sense the desperation now. Again, it's so easy to read these stories really quick and not, not park yourself in the emotion. And what Jesus said to him is rather unexpected in this moment. The text goes right into it. It says, Jesus says to the man, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, if there's ever a moment where it would be really helpful to have the videotape or even the audio recording, because what's, what we're missing here is his tone of voice. 
unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Here's some clues. We know from the text that Jesus is speaking to the man. We know he's speaking right to him, but what's kind of hidden in the English that you see in the original language is that he's speaking in plural. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you people will not believe. So he's, he's talking to the man. Again, he's in Galilee. A lot of people are gathered around, like, what's Jesus going to do next? Is he going to do some fun stuff? And Jesus says this to him at this moment of great desperation, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, what does he mean by that? I mean, the, the, predominant, the predominant understanding is maybe it was, it was a rebuke, which is, again, kind of strange in that moment uh, that Jesus is saying, you know, look, I'm concerned about people who want to be fans of mine just to get favors. When I'm here looking for followers of faith, that's, that's presumed. There's also a measure of truth in this, though, in a, in a positive way, where, where Jesus is recognizing the necessity of signs in order to draw people out of ourselves so that they can see, and we can see uh, with a sense of greater wonder who he is and what he's doing. You, you need signs and wonders, otherwise you're not going to believe. And, and there's a point to that, because obviously John is, is a book of signs that point us towards Jesus. So, but I think the answer here is in the balance of both. I, I think, Jesus, there is a, a pinch of rebuke here to the people who are gathered around. Like, hey, I'm not just here to be your miracle machine. But at the same time, you need to see a miracle in order to understand fully who I am. It's as if Jesus is saying, you need me to help you, sir. And I want to show you God's merciful love and salvation. But don't just think that I'm here to be your miracle machine. The official, Minnie King, responds to that, Sir, sir, come back home with me. My son is dying. And, uh, you know, great point. I hear you. Come home with me. though. My, my son is dying. And Jesus, on the beat, looks at this man's tears and says, Go home. Your son will be fine. Now, you got to remember, the, the, the royal official, the man of means and respect, he came to Jesus, and his, his want was to get Jesus in the chariot to get him back to his house so he could heal his kid. He's probably a man that's used to getting what he wants. Can you relate? And instead, Jesus says, go home. You just go home by yourself. Your son's going to be okay. He's going to be fine. And this is a hot moment right here because now this man has to make a choice. He came here to get Jesus, to take him to his house, and all he's been given by Jesus is his word. You go home, your son will live. And he has to make a choice. Do I trust Jesus at his word? Do I trust what he just said is true? Enough that he's willing to let go of Jesus' arm and start going back home. That's a big, big question. This moment is huge. This is his precious, beloved son. And all he has right now is God's, Jesus' words of promise. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke. 
He believed it. Was it the way that Jesus said it? Was it just knowing that this guy is truly from God? Maybe he didn't fully understand it in his theology, but this is God's word made flesh. And when Jesus said it, go, your son will live, there was so much truth soaked in that that he made the choice and turned around and started going back home. This, my friends, is faith. This is faith because he took Jesus at his word. One of my favorite definitions of faith is from uh, Hebrews chapter 11, obviously written later than the Gospels. In chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Now faith is the assurance of things that hoped for. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not yet seen. That is what this man had at that moment. He only has Jesus' words, go home, he's okay, he's going to live, and he accepted it, and he turned around, and he started going home. And on his way back, and again, it's over a day's drive, so it's not like he's there in five minutes. On his way back, he sees his servants, and they've come from the house to try to catch up with him. So you've got to imagine somewhere on the road, you know, they're meeting each other. And, I, and again, we can skip through this really quick, but you've got to imagine if they're heading down one way, and they're coming this way, and he sees them from a distance, and they're like, hey, hey, hey. You've got to wonder at some point, did his heart jump? Is this going to be good news? But then you're, he looks, and actually the servants seem to be smiling. Hey, hey. Finally catch up to him, out of breath. Sir, your son is alive. He's alive, and he's well. He's doing well. I'm sure there was a great celebration on the side of the road that day because he just got news that his son is well. I'm sure he wants to get there quickly, but in discussing the details, wait, what do you mean he's well? No, he's all better. He's great. He's sat up. He's breathing. He's walking. He's talking. The son, the father asks him, and I love this about the, the text because it says the official asked him, what time was it? What time is it? And the ser servants say, it was about one o'clock yesterday. One o'clock yesterday. He started doing really well. You notice that if you if you have the word in front of you, it's amazing. He's been called the official, the official. And then suddenly in the text, it turns and he's become the father. He's become the father. It says the father realized. It was the exact time that Jesus spoke those words, go home, your son will be fine. And when he got back home, oh, they celebrated. You know, he beelined it to that boy. You know, he picked him up and hugged him and kissed him and kissed him and hugged him and celebrated with his wife and maybe the rest of his family and their, their intimate friends and servants. And he began to recount to them the story of his short encounter with Jesus, whom he rode a day to find as his last and only hope. And he told him, it was yesterday, and he said, go home, your son will be, uh, be okay. And that's the time that you turn for healing. And the word says that belief, he himself believed, which means that his belief now set deep into his heart. It became the foundation in which he stood. And his whole family rejoiced, and his whole family came to faith in who Christ is. Because they all believed. This, by the way, was just the second sign Jesus did in Galilee. So what do we do with this story? As a sign today, I think of this, do, I, do, I, do we come to Jesus in that same way? Do we come to Jesus just like that royal official did? Do we come to him and do the signs point us towards 
him being Savior and Lord and God, even worthy of worship? Do we come before him humble and needing of mercy? Now, the typical application of this story is something along the lines of, hey, let's remember that Jesus is not our miracle machine. He's not just there so that we can have a better life today. He's not just there for our blessing and our benefit. But I actually don't think that's really most of our problem here. I don't think most of us are here today because we desire to use Jesus as kind of an easy, easy miracle machine. I think most of us here probably enjoy already having our needs met. Most of us probably already enjoy our health and our wealth and generally speaking have pretty clear command of the direction of our lives. But then there are those moments and we're all going to experience them one day where we really need mercy. We need a sign. God, are you really here? Are you real? And can I trust you? Just like the Roman official came to Jesus and begged, we're going to find ourselves at some point of, of need where Christ is our only hope. And we'll discover what he meant when he said, blessed are you who mourn, for you will be comforted. There's going to be a day when we're going to need help. And the, the sign that God gives us is the sign of the cross. That whatever we face in this life has been defeated there on the cross. The Roman official came to Jesus and he was desperate and he needed mercy. And that's actually how we should come to Christ every day. Not the begging part, but the coming to Jesus, seeking his, his blessing and seeking his leadership and trying to receive more of his mercy. Go, Jesus said, go back home and, and your, your son as well and celebrate. And that's what we do when we come to church and we hear that message of grace again. We trust just like that man and we take that story home with us and we celebrate it with our families. And when we gather together as a community, we celebrate it. We will just a moment at the table. But we have to ask ourselves too, do we trust Jesus at his word just like the official did? All he had was God's word and promise. Go home. Your son will live. Jesus spoke, and at the time that he spoke it, it happened. His son was well. Do we trust the same? Do we hear God's word, and do we trust it? That when he spoke it back then, that it was true, as true as it is today. This, by the way, is God's word, all of it. It's all breathed out by God, and it's helpful, instructive for us to know the boundaries and how to stay safe and also to have encouragement. This is, this is God's sign. This is God's sign for us. Do we trust him at his word? Do we trust Jesus at his word when he said, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life? Do we trust that? Do we believe when he said it, it was true? Do we stand on that promise? Do we take Jesus at his word when he said, come to me. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. Whoever comes, believes in me will never be thirsty. Do we trust that when he said it, it's true? And do we stand on that today? Are we living as if we're full? Do we trust Jesus at his word when he says, my peace I give you, my peace I give it to you? Do we stand on that promise? Have we accepted that peace? Do we walk as people filled with peace? When Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. And the penalty of all sin has been paid. Do we trust in his word then? 
that when he said it at that time, it was true and it's still true today. And we stand on that promise, not feeling like we have to keep earning God's favor or working towards it, but we get to receive it as grace, receive his mercy as a gift of grace. As we come forward to the table now in response to this word, we come forward just like the Roman official did. We come forward to the table today in need of mercy and grace. We come forward in need of renewed life where there may be deep sickness in our soul. We come to the table today as people deserving of death but receiving the gift of life. We come to be filled knowing that by faith we have been given God in our souls. And here at the table we receive Christ in our flesh. Therefore, we have the power to believe where others may deny. We have the power to hope where others despair. We have the power to love where others have been hurt. We come to the table trusting in God's word that says if we confess our sins, then God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So with that in our hearts, let us confess our sins together, saying, God of all mercy, we confess that we have sinned against you in thoughts, words, and actions. We have sinned by what we have done and by what we have not done for you. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We humbly repent and ask for your spirit's leading. Help us to walk in gratitude, delighting in your will, walking in your ways, doing everything for the glory of your name, Jesus our Lord. Amen. And we trust in the truth of God's word that says, may Almighty God have mercy on each one of us. Forgive us our sins through our Lord Jesus Christ. May he strengthen us in all goodness and by the power of the Holy Spirit keep us in eternal life. Now, my friends, let us hear and trust the words of our Lord Jesus Christ as they were delivered to the Apostle Paul. To the church in Corinth. For I received from the Lord what I also hand on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. O Lord of all, we offer our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving to you, presenting to you from your very creation this bread and this wine. Gracious God, we pray that you will send your Holy Spirit on these gifts, that they may be the sacrament of the body of Christ and the blood of the new covenant. Unite us to your Son in his death and resurrection, that we may be acceptable through him, being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In the fullness of time, put all things in subjection under Christ and bring us to that heavenly feast where, with all of your saints, we will be gathered in glory everlasting through Jesus Christ, our Lord, the firstborn over all creation, the head of the church, and the author and perfecter of salvation. 
by him, with him, and in him, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory is yours, Almighty Father, now and forever.